Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen, 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 church. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Thank you so much. Nothing like just singing, worship. I love, so thankful for our worship team and uh, just the opportunity to worship together. Listen, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. And then chapter one, and then chapter two, all right? That's a roadmap we're going on, right? So you got three chapters to, to navigate through. So we're going to start off in Mark, Mark chapter three. So if you can go and turn there, we're starting a new series, Jesus for All. Six-week series, Jesus for All. And so this is the amazing thing. We, we think of the exclusivity of Christ, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that's super offensive, right? You tell me there's only one way? But it's really inclusive. I think we don't realize this, how inclusive Jesus is. I mean, Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Good morning. Yeah, you're a bunch of sinners, right? We're all sinners. Like, I know we have a crowd of followers of Jesus here. But how many of us, just show your hand, are flawed? Any flawed people in here? Yeah, I think so. You're in good company, right? We have some issues. Y'all have some issues. We have issues. But the good news is as Jesus sees us even in our issues, even in our flaws. And so if you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Flawed Followers. Flawed Followers. And if you stay with us, this is what the beauty about actually being in person, because it's a lot more awkward to walk out at this point. You just got called a bunch of sinners. Then online, you just shut me off. That's, that happens too. But we've got to stick, stick through it because there's good news. Like realizing, yeah, we've sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but by God's grace. And that's where we're going through in the series and this morning. And so we're starting in Mark, Mark 3. And what we're going to look at this morning is the disciples of Jesus. The 12 disciples of Jesus, but we're only going to take a look at a few of them. But we see the 12 mentioned in Mark 3, verse 16 through 19. Says he, being Jesus, appointed the twelve to Simon, he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and to his brother John, he gave the name Bonanergis. Bonanergis. Well, I've been practicing all morning. I'm I'm telling you, I knew I was going to butcher it. It said all kinds of different ways. Here, hey, listen to this. Write this down. This is going to be important. Most important thing you're here all morning. This is a Bible study tip, okay? When you have to read things out loud, and hard names come up because they're going to as you go through the Bible, say it with confidence because no one else knows anyway. That's free. The Sons of Thunder was their nickname. Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And you see several listings of these disciples. It always ends with Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, Right? Don't be that person. Anyway, but what it says is what we know is that Jesus appointed them. In John 15, it says, Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and your fruit should remain. This is good news. And this is total contrary to the rabbi-disciple relationship of the day. See, a would-be student, a learner, would pursue a rabbi and request to follow him. 
and the rabbi would either accept or deny him. And yet Jesus here is going to these men and asking them to come into a student discipleship, student-master relationship with him. And the question we have to ask is, why these men? Why these 12? Were they the social elite, the influential, the affluent? They must have had some kind of higher religious training, seminary-type education, right? Not so much. These men were the common of the common, ordinary, unrefined, unlikely, and extremely flawed. Yet, Jesus saw them in their flaws and still chose them, extending the invitation to imitation. This is what following means, is to imitate the teacher. This is not only mastering his teachings, but mastering his way of life. Becoming a replica of the rabbi. This is what they were signing up to follow him. In other words, I mean, it is football season. It'd be like Jesus taking all his first-round draft pick, right, selections into people that would not even make the draft, didn't even play college football, right? I mean, they maybe play Pop Warner in third grade. This is the guys that Jesus was selecting. I can tell you, not a lot of football fans, that's all right. God's grace still extends to you too. But go back to Mark chapter 1. And we're starting verse 16, and we're going to take a look at just a few of these followers of Jesus that he chose to become his followers. Mark 1.16 says, As he, and Jesus, passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Notice it says, Immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Again, it says, immediately he called them, and they left their father, shame on them, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Just yesterday, just a side note, I was doing some work, and I need my boys, my two older boys, to help me. So they came over to help me, and then they saw their friend that needed a little bit of help. So they ran across, and they never came back. And so I'm out here all alone. I go. So I felt like Zebedee a little bit. Anyway, too much information. The point is, accepting Jesus' follow me invitation means a separation from your old way of life into following Jesus into a new way of life. These fishermen, along with all the other would-be disciples, did not make the religious cut of the day to be selected to follow a rabbi, yet Jesus, the rabbi of all rabbis, chose them to follow him in this deeper relationship. And they knew what it meant. They knew that following Jesus meant foregoing all financial and familial stability to follow Jesus. Yet they immediately followed him because they knew that Jesus was worth the risk. And this runs completely contrary to a lot of modern-day Christianity. Meaning, following Jesus as long as we can have stability, success, and a whole lot of stuff. Which is interesting, because this is the exact problem that the rich man had in Mark 10. 
But the rich man that comes to Jesus and asks to follow Jesus, by all accounts, was a religiously good man. By today's standards, may it be like he went to church every Sunday. Could you believe he even served in way kids? Crazy. You know, he read his Bible every day. He gave 10% and even gave an additional to the Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon mission offerings. It's amazing. This guy was a religious elite. And yet it says, when Jesus looked at him, it says, Jesus loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven then. Come follow me. It says, the man was dismayed by this demand. And he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And I feel like it's a choice that a lot of people make today. And where we land today, we want our stuff more than we want Jesus. We see similar accounts of this throughout the Gospels. When people are pressed between following Jesus and following their personal pleasures, ultimately choosing themselves over the Savior. In John 6... Jesus essentially says to this group of would-be disciples, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Not exactly a church growth strategy, right? To which in John 6, 60, it says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And then in John 6, 6, 6, funny what God does with numbers, it says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. This is not the 12. He had many other followers that were following him, but they wanted the fame more than him and the faith that comes with that. True followers count the cost and are willing to risk everything to follow Jesus because they know they've experienced Jesus who is greater than everything. And I wonder if we can say that. Uh, Capital One commercials. They do a great job. They crack me up. Their, their motto is, it's the easiest decision in the history of decisions. I don't know if you've seen these. My personal favorite, you know, you got this group of middle-aged adult men trying to play baseball, right? Baseball league. It's a bomb in the ninth, 4-4. They need a pinch hitter. So he's looking across the bench, the coach, the manager, and see all these middle-aged guys. And then Derek Jeter, right? Easiest decision in the history of decisions. I tell you, when you've come to know who Jesus is and what he's done and what it means to follow him in the life that we have in Jesus, the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's what we see these fishermen. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 2, verse 13, and we'll see from the ordinary fisherman to the outcast tax collector, Jesus' invitation still goes out. Mark 2, verse 13. It says, Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, who we also know as Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. That immediate response once again. It is important for us to know that the tax collectors of the day weren't the most popular people. They did not win popularity contests. They were not voted, you know, most likely to be awesome. You know what I'm saying? They, they just didn't like them. They were hated, they were despised, and completely rejected by their own people. 
Because what they were doing is they were, they were essentially siding with the enemy, being the Roman authority, for their own personal financial pursuits and selfish gain at the expense of their own people. So they were not popular. They were despised. They had a reputation of being extremely shady, untrustworthy. See, they would overtax their own people so they can take some for themselves and then give the rest to the Romans. Completely untrustworthy. Yet, knowing this, Jesus essentially says in my words, despite your flaws, you'll make a great disciple. Follow me. Let that sink in for a minute. Like these guys were considered the sinners of sinners. He says, yeah, I know that. You're going to be awesome, right? Perfect candidate to follow me. And like the fishermen, we see a separation from Matthew's old way of life into following Jesus into a new way of life. Not only does Jesus call the unlikely and the outcast, but also those would, who would be in opposition to one another. We saw in the, the listing in Mark 3, Simon, not Peter, but Simon, who's listed as the zealot. This is interesting, because we got Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, in the same group. These guys were on completely two opposite ends of the political spectrum. You got Matthew siding with the Roman government for personal gain. And we have Simon the Zealot, who is a part of this uprising, essentially, this militia-type movement to overthrow the Roman government. Now, how can these two people both be invited to follow Jesus and follow him? I mean, in today's terms, it would have been like even donkeys and elephants can have unity. You guys following that? You guys go there? Okay. The point is, when both these men experienced Jesus, they laid down their differences because it's Jesus who unifies, not their political stances, not anything else. It was Jesus. And so all these people from different backgrounds, baggages, preferences, opinions, passions, laid them all down and made Jesus the focus. How can we have church unity? Because Jesus is the unifying factor. That's what we see here. This is, Jesus is the why behind the one-day reality of Revelation 7. That one day, before the throne of God and before the Lamb, there will be a people from every tribe, nation, tongue represented. How can we have that kind of unity? Because of Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. We actually can have that unity right now. Isn't that wild? But we have to submit to Jesus as Lord and then hold our preferences and opinions pretty lightly. I know it's offensive to a lot of people. It's all right. We'll be all right. The point that we're seeing here is following Jesus, flaws and all, means a complete separation from your old way of life into a new way of life. Jesus is the one who transforms. Let me ask you this. When you're excited about something, do you not share it? It's okay. You can talk. It's just fine. Yeah, of course you do. Most of the time, unless it's, you know, you don't want anyone else to know. But we share it. I, I, I see social media. You share it, right? No matter what it is. I had an awesome, pretty breakfast. I'm going to share it because I'm so excited about it. We share weird things. This is exactly what Matthew does next. He invites a bunch of his buddies together. Look at verse 15. It says, While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, he being Jesus, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. 
For there were many who were following him. When the scribes and who when the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let that sink in for a minute. Listen, those who go to the doctor realize that they're messed up, right? They're sick or broken, and they can't do anything about it. And so, personal experience, I don't go to the doctor. It has to be pretty severe for me to go to the doctor. So I'll try anything and everything else, sometimes to my own dismay, I guess, before I go as a last resort to the doctor, right? I mean, just like a month and a half ago. So, okay. I BMX race with my boys, right? I'm too old to be doing that. I know. But I do it anyway. Some pride in me. I have to do it. I had a pretty good little nasty crash, and I got this little scrape on my elbow. It's not so much a little scrape. And so my wonderful wife said, you need to go and get stitches. No, not doing it. So it hurt pretty bad. So finally the next day, I'm like, all right, I'll go get checked out. Maybe something's wrong. Well, it's too late to get stitches because the healing process already started. Anyway, too much information, but I'm going somewhere with this. So my reluctancy to go to the doctor and do what needed to be done caused me an extra few weeks of pain and frustration allowing this thing to try to heal versus if I would have got stitches up the same day, it would have healed three times as fast, been completely done, but my own pridefulness, stubbornness, shocking, right, prevented me from humbling myself and going to the doctor, really realizing my need for his assistance. And so what do we do with this? Jesus was not saying that these religious leaders were not sick, but actually worse off because they did not see their great need. So, do we see our great need? He came to save, seek those who were lost. But to be found, we have to see the need and reach out, and God is ready to graciously receive all those who, who call upon him. But we have to see our need. And it's, it's amazing to me, as I was thinking about this, when Jesus said in front of the whole group, you all a bunch of sinners, that's what he said. It didn't say there was any pushback. Because they knew. They knew their reputation. They knew what these religious leaders thought. This is the goodness of the gospel. That though we're all sinners in need of a Savior, God extended his amazing grace to us. And that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God made us alive in Christ Jesus by faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone. Lived a life that we couldn't live to pay the price that we couldn't pay through his death on the cross that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is the good news of the gospel. So I'm asking, do you really believe? Not head knowledge, like know some stuff about Jesus. I read the Bible a couple times. I've been to church a few times. No, do you trust him, that head transferring their heart? Do you trust him? Did you lay down all your life to him? That's the difference. Seeing our great need. And what we see is the actions of Matthew, we also see in the actions of Philip. And if you can, turn to John 1 real quick. John 1, verse 43. Because what I want to see real quick is once you have come to see the worth of Jesus, 
you cannot help but to invite others to come and see Jesus. This is exactly what Matthew does. He invites a bunch of his friends to come and see what he's found. That's what we see in Philip. John 1.43 says, The next day Jesus decided to leave from Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Can anything good come from out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming and told him and said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. This is interesting. Philip said he's the son of Joseph, but Nathanael knows that he is the son of God, the savior of the world. And it's so interesting to see the Philip's urging of Nathanael to come and see comes from Philip's joy in what he has found in Jesus. Again, we share what we care about. Football season again. I know we have no football fans. I'm standing alone, but I'm going to hopefully convince you. Monday morning after Sunday, what are we all talking about? Those who like football. Football. Yeah. Football. We talk about, we share about what we care. It's just true. What we care about comes out. And so we see with Philip, he comes and urges Nathaniel. And Nathaniel knows that he came while doubting. You got doubts? Consider and look into Jesus. He came with his doubts and then ended up concluding for himself that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ, was the Savior of the world. He didn't take Philip's word for it. Don't take my word for it. You come to Jesus with your doubts and you investigate. Several years ago, I wasn't going to share this, but I got the microphone, so I'm going to do it. Several years ago, we went to a, I won't say it because we're online, so an Islamic state, a country, a Muslim country visiting some house churches and one church planter there and got to hear several testimonies. And one testimony was really striking because he, as a kid, he was raised up in an Islamic school system and they were just trained at how Christianity was wrong and how Islam is right and Jesus was in their view just a prophet and nothing more. And he just fell off. It didn't make sense. And so he explored of him for himself the Bible and the claims of Christianity versus the claims of Islam. And through his own study, and obviously the working of the Holy Spirit, he came to conclude that Christianity was true. On his own. Came searching and found the one true Jesus. And that was a follower of Jesus in extremely hard territory. Come with your doubts. And there's the most important question that you will, every one of us does have to answer. See, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Essentially, who do you say I am? They start off with, well, some say, you know, this person, that's Elijah, one of the prophets. He says, okay, who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter, one that speaks first, speaks loudest. He says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's either that or he's not. That's the question you have to answer. I quote this a lot because it's one of my favorite quotes. C.S. Lewis. 
He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left this as an option, he has not intended to. You have to make your choice. Either he's Lord over all or not Lord at all. That's the only choice you have. And your eternity matters, and it counts on that one question. Even though flawed people, Jesus chose these 12 men to follow him into a deeper relationship. And here's the crazy thing. You would think that once they started following Jesus, these men would now be great men, fearless, bold men of faith, because here they were, stood face to face with Jesus, heard with their own ears his words, experienced all the experiences right in front of their eyes. You would think these men would be bold and fearless. Not so much. Isn't this incredible? These followers had faith, yet still had flaws. And this is where I want us to have some patience with ourselves. This sanctification process means God is making you more and more like him. But more times than not, sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is over time, not overnight. Man, there are some things that God will just deliver you from immediately, no doubt. But most things is over time, not overnight. And that's why I find these disciples so encouraging, because as they follow Jesus, they still messed up a lot. Going back to our guys, James and John, sons of thunder. You know how they got that name, I think? Comes from Luke 9. After Jesus was going with his disciples through the Samaritan village, it said that they did not welcome him in these villages. So, what James and John say? He says, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them? Anger issues? Maybe. Jesus is like, no, 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 you're missing it, right? My words. These guys had issues. You have Thomas, who will be forever etched in history as Doubting Thomas. Poor guy, like, seriously. He had one little doubt, a little hiccup. And we know Peter, as we talked about, being the first who acts first, talks first. I've heard him called the disciple with a foot-shaped mouth. I can resonate with that. This guy goes from walking on water, you remember this, to drowning, right? He came focusing on Jesus, walking on water, but those waves that start start coming, had doubts, sink. He reached up, save me, Jesus pulled him back up, right? This guy made the bold confession that, yes, you are the Christ and Messiah. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. On this confession, through you, Peter, I will build my church. And Jesus goes on and tells his disciples that, you know, I will be betrayed, I will be handed over, I will be crucified, but I will come back. And Peter says, no, no, he rebukes Jesus. What? He rebukes Jesus. And so he goes from this high to Jesus saying, Get behind me, Satan. Well, that's a gut check, right? Just on this rock, I'll build my church. Get behind me, Satan. Like Peter, this is our guy. 
He goes from saying, I will never leave you, Jesus. I don't care what comes at us. I will never leave your side. To the night when Jesus was betrayed, he denied him three times, saying, I never knew the man. These are the men that Jesus chose to follow him. They were fearful followers. After Jesus was crucified, John 20 tells us that they hid behind locked doors out of fear of the Jews. They crucified their master and they hid. They were scared. They were fearful. But somehow, they became fearless. What in the world changed? Fearful, flawed while following, but after they saw the resurrected Jesus, they became fearless. And I think this is one of the greatest proofs of who Jesus claimed to be and what disciples saw and the life transformation they had. Because then they risked everything when they saw the resurrected Lord. I mean, Jesus gave them the great commission, right, in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And listen, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is a post-resurrected Jesus before he ascended. In Acts 1.8, he says, now stay here in Jerusalem for a minute. He says, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in all Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These are the same fearful followers who now were becoming fearless. Because they went. They went proclaiming the gospel, baptizing those who believed, and discipling them. And the gospel went out. And this is important. We're getting ready to celebrate next week, Baptism Sunday. They don't want to miss that. What a great celebration to see the evidence of the inward working and an outward expression of baptism. But baptism is a step of obedience. Listen, the waters don't do a thing, right? The Holy Spirit does that. He transforms you. He makes you new. But we do this step of obedience because Jesus told us to. And disciples did it at risk of their lives. In Acts 2, we see the gospel is preached, and 3,000 come to faith and are baptized. Water baptism by submersion. I say this every time. Baptism means submerse. So we submerse by submersion. You understand what I'm saying here? In Acts 8, we see Philip coming to the Ethiopian eunuch, proclaiming the gospel. He believes. He says, where's the water? And he baptizes him. We see Saul, the great persecutor of the church, come to faith and is baptized. Then we now know him as Paul. We see the centurion and his company in Acts 10 come to faith, heard the gospel, baptized. We have Lydia, hear the gospel, her and her family, come to faith, baptized. We have Philip, the Philippian jailer and his family come to faith and are baptized. We have believers that had faith, but they were baptized in John's baptism, which isn't a believer's baptism. They heard the gospel and the believer's baptism, and guess what? They were baptized. I don't want to overstate this, but baptism is a pretty big deal. I hate that we get to this point that we see everything after salvation is optional. I don't know why we think that. Yeah, baptism isn't a salvation thing. I want to make that very clear. But it definitely is an obedience thing. And these men and women would bring the gospel, baptize, and disciple. And even right now in the country I had mentioned, in various countries throughout the world, we're part of a movement in the Middle East right now where we've seen over 900 baptisms this year in a heavily persecuted environment 
Islamic environment. Why do they do that? Risking their own lives because obedience to Jesus is more important than disobedience. The point here is that the fearful followers were now fearless because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And I love this in Acts 4. Because here Peter and John were arrested because of the gospel. And standing before the religious leaders, and it says about the religious leaders this. It says, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, amen, they were amazed and recognized, this is important, they had been with Jesus. Jesus is a difference maker. Jesus is the one that changes things. Spend time with Jesus and you will not be the same. Experience Jesus, he's the one that changes everything. So it goes back to sanctification over time, not overnight. But the more time you spend with Jesus, the more Jesus is going to change you. If you're not spending time with Jesus, don't expect to be changed. But that first comes with trusting in Jesus and having that relationship with Jesus. But also be patient with yourself as you're pursuing Jesus because Jesus is patient with you. We're all still flawed. We're all still working. But God is working in you and he's not done with you yet. So there's definitely fruit of the Holy Spirit working in you. You should be looking different. By God's grace, I'm looking different than I do now than I did 22 years ago when I came to faith. Praise God. But do I still got a long way to go? Yeah. Does it hurt when I see how sinful I am? Yeah. That's God's grace and conviction by the Holy Spirit, not condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I also want to touch on one more thing. And in this list of disciples, it comes to the last one, Judas. The disciple that wasn't a disciple. I just think here that Judas is a good representation for what Jesus refers to as the unpardonable unforgivable sin. And we talked through this a couple years ago. What is that? The sin of rejecting the Holy Spirit's affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's rejecting that. So as long as you remain in that rejection of Jesus, you remain in your sin. And when you die in your rejection of Jesus, you die in your sin, unforgiven. And that's this should break our hearts. This should break our heart for a community and to the ends of the earth that there's millions of people, billions of people who are rejecting Jesus and are stuck in their sin and eternity's coming. And there's no forgiveness outside of Jesus. That's why he died for you so that you can live with him by faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But to go back to the good news that Jesus is for all. For everyone who would believe. The gospel has reached the unlikely, us, through the unlikely, them. It started with the 12, and somehow the gospel got to you. Because we share what we care about, and obedience for Christ, even when it's awkward, uncomfortable, and dangerous. 7,000-ish unreached peoples in the world, groups. Billions of underreached people, but groups. Why are they so unreached? Because they're dangerous, hard to get to, and we're not willing to sacrifice. 
I wonder if we believe the gospel and believe God's sovereignty and we'll take those steps of faith knowing that God's sovereign over all things and we go out of love for the Lord and love for others. A true love for others and the way Jesus showed us is sacrificial and Jesus-focused. But the good news is he chooses the unlikely. That's us. The flawed. You already admitted, that's you too. That's us. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but it is a power of God to those who are being saved. Verse 27, that same chapter says, Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This was the 12 disciples, and for all those who were following Jesus, I got good news, that's you too. By God's grace, he has chosen us who are unworthy, unlikely, flawed, to be followers of him. Because ultimately, only then does he get the glory. Because he alone is worthy of our worship. So come with your flaws. He's inviting you. So I'm going to ask us to respond to what God's doing in your life. I'm going to invite our worship team back up. And we're going to sing one more worship song. But I want you to just to pause and consider what the Holy Spirit may be doing in your life right now. Let me ask you, first and foremost, do you trust in Jesus as Lord? I don't mean know some facts and know some information. Can you lay down your life for Jesus right now? Everything, your finances, your job, your family, is he worth it? Do you trust him in that way? If not, I pray the Holy Spirit's leading you to resolve that trust. And Jesus is worth it. And he is worthy. Maybe you just stumbled in your flaws right now. And you're following Jesus, but you can't get over stumbling. Come to the Lord with your issues, your flaws, your circumstances, your stresses, your anxieties, your fears, your struggles, your addictions. Ask him to intervene, give you a distaste and a dislike and a hatred for those that he sees as distasteful and hate-filled towards because they're damaging to you. Like we saw Matthew and his group of sinners. It says in Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with them and eat with them and him with me. This is a fellowship and relationship that we can have with the one true God through faith in Jesus that's available to all who believe. Jesus for all. So I'm just going to ask you to respond to what God's doing in your life right now. This may look a a variety of ways. I'm going to pray for us, and our worship team is going to sing and lead us in worship one more time, but you respond to what God's doing in the way he's calling you to do it. That may look like you can continue to sit where you are and pray and resolve and sell some things with Jesus. Maybe you pray with a couple people around you. We'll have a prayer team over to the side. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you, because we're a church that desires to walk alongside you because you're not alone in this faith journey. Or maybe that is standing and worshiping and praising God because he alone is worthy of all of our praise. But you respond to what God's doing in your life.
Let me pray for us. Father, right now we come to you. We're so grateful for who you are and you choosing those who are extremely flawed. And so, Lord, help us to, one, see our flaws, see our failures, but not be stuck in them because you are the rescuer and redeemer, Lord. So remind us, as we come to you with all of our stresses and our fears and anxieties and addictions and all these heart issues that we're struggling with, remind us that you are the redeemer, the refresher, and the forgiver for all those who come to you because through your blood that on the cross, you have purchased for you a people. So all that would come to you, we receive forgiveness because of your sacrifice. You have paid the price for the severity of our sin so that we can come to you and let true life begin in you. So right now, I just ask that you lead us to see maybe any blind spots that we have in our lives, sin that we have in our life, unconfessed sin, that we can just bring it to you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all in sin. And knowing that all that come to you by faith are now called sons and daughters of the one true God and have that right relationship with you restored for eternity. And Lord, for those that are just struggling, for us that are struggling with you name the sin, the addiction, the problem, the fear, the struggles, the stress. I praise you do amazing work. You bring deliverance. You bring freedom. You bring peace. You bring comfort. You bring joy. You bring hope. You bring love. Show us your grace and your mercy and your amazing sacrificial love. And Lord, let's leave here closer to you than we came. Father, we thank you for all that you're doing. And all who you are, thank you for your amazing love. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray all this in the most powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.